glad and thankful that we can gather again together as God's people here in God's house and worship him together uh, as one. Uh, The Bible says in in the book of James that uh, Elijah the prophet prayed and for three years God did not send rain upon the land. And James uses this to point out that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So I don't know which one of you righteous people has been praying for snow, but uh, your prayer has been answered. You can stop praying. We are good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or, or better yet, pray for snow, not on the weekend. We'll, we'll, go, we'll go with that. We'll change it up a little bit. Change the days of the week. <laughs> uh, I want to, as we begin, just point your attention to a few announcements there in the bulletin. Uh, today is the last day to turn in. Uh, information for the directory to Jessica Love. Uh, so if you have not turned in your uh, paperwork or your committee's paperwork or any reports that need to get turned in, turn those into Jessica today. Uh, if, if anything needs to be worked, I'm going to let Jessica handle all that stuff. Um, because of that, in two weeks, on February 13th, we have our congregational meeting uh, here after the worship service. So if you're a member of the church Please stick around after that worship service for our meeting. We'll go through the directory and look ahead to the, the year coming up here in 2022. Uh, choir practice is Wednesday at 7. And as always, we do need sign-ups for nursery and children's story. Uh, this morning, we won't be having children's story. We'll have our, our capital fund in place of it. But we do need uh, sign-ups. I think we have somebody signed up for next week and maybe even the week after. I think uh, we have that. But Children's story and nursery, we need sign-ups for as well. If you have any questions, let me know. Uh, last announcement I have, or that I was told to give, is that if you need uh, tax documents for your giving, your records for 2021, uh, you need to let Pat know. She'll be happy to give those to you, but if you don't ask for it, she's not going to give it. Uh, so if you need it, just ask, and, and Pat will help you with that. Are there any other announcements that I'm missing? All right, got them all. Good. Uh, with that, let me begin. I want to read to you, uh, from the Psalms as we begin our worship service. It is, it is Psalm, uh, 130 that I want to read. And it is a, it's a, it's a prayer like all the Psalms are. It is a prayer to the Lord, uh, a prayer, a cry of, of help as well as a cry of, of waiting and patience. This is what it says. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Let me pray for us as we begin our worship service this morning. Father, it is good for us to be able to gather again. Thank you for your grace and your kindness to us. Over these last few weeks as we've been separated Because of the weather, God, we are thankful and we rejoice that you have once again brought your people together. Thank you. Thank you for this time this morning that we have to worship you. God, we pray and we come to you seeking your face and seeking your presence. And God, we ask that you would send your spirit to us, to your people. 
that you would fill this place as your people gather to worship you. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. Not neglecting either one of these, but to, to worship you with our spirit, to worship you with our hearts and with our emotions, with, with our feelings, God, but to worship you also in truth. As we acknowledge and celebrate and rejoice and recite your word, which is truth to you this morning. Father, be with your people this morning. Help us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us uh, continue in worship and, and sing together our first hymn. It's hymn 419. My faith looks up to thee. Please stand and sing. Thank you. Please be seated. Eric's going to come forward and lead us at our capital fund. This is our, well, it would have been last Sunday, but, you know, hey, we use the Sundays we have, but uh, capital fund Sunday, and it's something we collect up separately from our regular offertory. <clears throat> I wanted to talk about a cornerstone today, just briefly. Um, we come out of Ephesians 2, 19-22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, 
having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place in, of, the God, of God in the Spirit. So, you know, we know that Jesus is the cornerstone of, of us Christians. This church, this building, has a cornerstone that the, the builders put in place as a, as a foundation, the, the part that won't move. But we as a church, we as a congregation, continually have to grow and keep this church maintained and, and keeping it growing as a church. Uh, this, this building wouldn't exist without our efforts uh, to keep it as such. Cornerstone would probably be there. But the rest of the church wouldn't be there without effort and time. Uh, just like what we put into our faith with God, we put it into, we put some time and, and money into this church building. In the front of your hymnals uh, is a copy of the Apostles' Creed. Here at Bear Creek, every week we say this creed aloud together for, for two reasons. Uh, one, we are forgetful people, and we easily forget what it is that we believe. And so the Apostles' Creed is a verbal way to remind our own ears what it is that we believe. And two, it reminds one another of why we gather and what brings us together. Here, here in this creed, we have the, the truths of Scripture, the truths of the gospel, stated clearly, concisely uh, for our recital and for our reminder. And so I'll invite you to say the creed aloud with me as you remain seated. And then after the creed, we will sing the doxology together, and I'll invite you at that point to stand and sing this song of praise to God who has given us these great things. So I invite you at this time to say the Apostles' Creed aloud with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. standing our next hymn is hymn 461 breathe on me breath of god
Thank you. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. We are continuing our way through this book of God's law. This morning we are in chapter 19 and we will be looking specifically at verse 14. Deuteronomy 19 verse 14 says this. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, we we believe that your word is truth, that your word is important, that your word has a meaning to us today. And it's on that basis that we can come even to just a single verse in the book of Deuteronomy and know that your word speaks to us. So, Father, knowing this, we come and ask for help. I come and ask for help, Father, that you would use even this one simple verse to speak to us, to speak to your people, and that the goodness and the grace of the gospel of Christ would be proclaimed to us this morning, even from one verse. May your spirit open our eyes, illuminate us to see this truth to worship you in it. I'll speak through me this morning. May your name be glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know about, about you, but the last three weeks in our house have been a little bit busy and a little bit chaotic. Uh, we, I had a class in Wake Forest the beginning of January came home to a house of sickness, and, and we have recovered from COVID, uh, but as you can hear, my voice is still a little bit off, uh, still dealing with some sinus infection, but God is good and has, has brought our family through. Uh, so maybe it was our, our family, maybe our children praying for the, the snow the second week because we weren't able to enjoy it the first week, uh, but, but God gave us a, a second chance and even a third chance to enjoy the snow, and so we, we definitely had had some fun over the last two weeks, but it is good to be back with you this morning. Uh, I think Ron made a a joke earlier this week that because we've missed the last two weeks, this morning I had to bring you three sermons. And so to do that, I've chosen one verse and we'll we'll see how it goes. Um, As a a way of reminder, we've we've been working through our our way, uh, working our way through this book of Deuteronomy. We've we've come to, to chapter 19 and three weeks ago we looked at the cities of refuge that God provided. And, and really, as we began chapter 19, we, we began this section of, of about four chapters here in Deuteronomy that are all focused on elaborating the sixth commandment, do not kill. And so in the first part of 19, we are given what happens if you accidentally kill someone. If, you're, if you unintentionally kill, where, where can you run? And, and God provided these cities of refuge for, for safety and for safe harbor for, for these people. And then we get to verse 14, which I have just read to you. 
And the reason I bring this up is, is one of the things that we need to understand as we begin this morning studying is that as you read God's word, context means everything. We could, we could pull this verse and rip it out of context and, and really focus on just this one verse in Deuteronomy. But if we do that, then we are likely to miss what this verse is really about. Because as you can see, the verse is, is very simple. Don't move your neighbor's landmark. Don't do it. And we can call it a day and move on and go have some lunch after that. But if what I want you to see is in this context of, of Deuteronomy 19, of the sections elaborating the sixth commandment of do not kill. How does, how does Deuteronomy 19.14 work as an elaboration of thou shall not kill? And so this morning, what I, want to, what I want to discuss with you, what I want to show you from God's word is, is the meaning and the, the, the importance of property and why property matters. And, and Paige and I were talking this week. I, I had, had worked through a couple different ways of had actually spent the whole week preparing to preach to you the rest of chapter 19, starting at verse 14 and going all the way to the end of the chapter. And, and maybe if we lived in a different context, if, if we didn't live out in the country but lived in a big city, maybe I would have done that. But living out here where we do, knowing many of you the way that, that I do, and many of you being farmers, many of you taking special pride in your property and in your land, I felt that verse 14 had in its, in its depths enough content and enough meaning for us to really spend an entire Sunday on this one verse. Because we are people who prize our property, are we not? And your property is, is a, a, of great meaning to you, isn't it? Maybe it's a, a piece of property that has been passed down to you from parents and grandparents or great-grandparents even. Maybe it's a piece of property that you hope to one day pass on to your children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Maybe you're a farmer whose income is based out of your land and, and where your, your fields begin and end. And it's because of this that I want to spend this morning looking at this verse and looking at the importance of, of why property matters. But I also understand that not everyone here may own property. You may be a child who, whose property is your bedroom and the toys within it. Or maybe you're like us. You're rental, renters. My, my family doesn't own any of the property that we live on. We, we borrow it from you, from the church. But I can tell you, even though it is, does not legally belong to us, it is a very special property to us because it is home. And all that to say is that property is a very broad term. And as we use it this morning, as I as I use this this word property this morning, I, I want you to understand that whether or not you own rent or borrow property, the things that you have in your life special to you your stuff matters and that's a good thing it should and so this morning as we as we look at deuteronomy 14 i want to give you three truths about property from god's word that i believe are of great importance to us today so truth number one property stuff property is given to you as a means of life Property is given as a means of life. 
You see, we, as we look here at this command and we understanding, understanding the context that this is a, an elaboration of the commandment, do not kill, we need to understand how exactly property falls under this commandment. Because it really doesn't seem like this would. How does a property line and where a property marker, where it falls, how does this determine whether or not you kill someone? But, but think about it for a moment. Through the lens of Israel. Israel was an agricultural society. The, biz, the, they, the businessmen and women of the day were, were first and foremost farmers. And so in, an, in this agricultural society where your income is solely based on your crop share, where the size of your field determines how much money you can make, then the special positions, the special markings that, that mark off where your property begins and ends are directly connected to your way of living. If your field is shrunk, your life is shrunk. If your field expands, your life expands. So if the property lines, if the markers that border your property are moved, then in a very real sense, your life would be changed. I mean, we get this, don't we? I mean, we we this makes sense to us. Because you see, if, if we lived in a big city, this passage would be a little bit different. Because if we lived in a big city, our property would most likely begin and end at our, the front door of our apartment. And, and even at that, it would most likely be a rental property and not even belong to us. But whether it's a, a business or whether it's a farmland or whether it's an apartment, we understand how big a deal property lines are, don't we? I mean, is, is property not as important to you as it was in Israel? Do we not value? Do we not cherish it? Do we not protect it? You see, property is as important to us today as it was in Israel. And I, I believe that the reason for this is the same. Because the Lord provides property. He provides stuff to us as a means of sustaining our lives. I mean, here's the, here's the reality. No one is here by accident. You are not at Bear Creek this morning by chance. By a roll of the dice. You do not live in your house because some sort of chaotic fate just happened to put you here. The farmland you, you work, the, the land you own, the, the house that you live in, the very pillow that you rest your head on at night has been sovereignly ordained and provided for you. It didn't just happen. It was given. You see, we, we know that God reveals himself to us in creation. You walk, you look out over the sunset, you look at the trees, you see everything that God has made. And we say, yes, God speaks to us. How could anyone ever deny that God is real? But I wonder if we've ever looked at the ground beneath our feet, the, the ground that we own. If we look at our homes as a means in which God reveals himself to us still. I mean, how often do we look at our driveway and see God's good gift to us, God's provision to us? How often do we pull into the front 
of our, of our homes or walk through the front door and, and proclaim to our home, God, this is what you've given me and it is good. I mean, when's the last time that you walked around your property, when you walked around your home, when you walked around your yard and you said, wow, look at what God has given When's the last time you thanked him for these things? It might be something you set yourself to do this afternoon. I think that the verse 14 of, of here in Deuteronomy 19, I think it is a calling on us first and foremost to celebrate the land and the stuff and the property that God has given us. Because he has given it to us to sustain our lives. I think we must celebrate these things. I think we must celebrate the very specific location that God has placed us in. We must recognize that it is his hand, that it is his will, that it is his sovereign understanding and provision and ordaining that you are where you are. The hard part about this. Is I think that verse 14 also calls on us to celebrate the land that God has not given you. To celebrate the stuff that does not belong to you. That we are called in verse 14 also to rejoice over what God has given your neighbor and not you. You see, I think this is the hard part because people are too often seen as obstacles. They are in the way. Their, their house, their land, their property gets in the way, does it not? And if property is given to us as a means of life, as a means of sustaining life, then truth number two that we need to understand is that attacking property, whether it be through theft or moving property lines or damage or even complaining, attacking property is also a means of attacking someone's life. I mean, let's let's take a moment of, of honesty here. How many of you in the last months, years, weeks, however long you want to look back, how many of you have complained about all the people who are moving into Mount Pleasant? I mean, Mount Pleasant is growing, and it's a good thing, but with this comes people. You cannot grow without more people. And so how many of us, how many of you who've lived here your entire lives and are used to seeing just wide open spaces of no one for miles and miles and miles, now there's houses, there's new builds, there's new construction, there's new equipment moving in every day. And we know the, the science behind it. I mean, here we live an hour or so outside of Charlotte, and as Charlotte grows, then Harrisburg and Concord grows, and as Harrisburg and Concord grows, then Mount Pleasant grows. And that growth means a change of life for a lot of us. Mount Pleasant looks different today than it did 20 years ago. And 20 years from now, it will look different from how it looks today. Primarily because it will be growing. People will be growing. My, my parents moved into their house uh, just a few years ago. And it's in the, uh, a subdivision that they've... They've moved into, but when they moved into this house, immediately next to their house was a vacant lot. And it was in between two other, uh, another house. It was a smaller lot. And so the thought was, 
no one's ever going to build here. It's just going to be an empty space. And so my dad, who loves watching birds and feeding birds and putting out food for deer and raccoons, he, he loved it. He kept the grass cut. He mowed it. He put out feeders. It was a nice space. And this week, actually, my mom and dad were headed out to their cars to go to work. And what did they notice in that vacant lot but stakes? Markers for a new home being built right next door. And, of course, this caused quite a, a conversation in my parents' house as my sister, whose, whose bedroom looks out over that vacant lot, now realized that instead of looking at grass and nature, she's going to be looking at neighbors. And as my parents realized that their enjoyment, this space that they had enjoyed, is now getting smaller as people are moving in. And it's very easy in, in times like this, it's very easy for us to complain about this. Because in, in our mind, that space belonged to us. And now someone else is getting in the way, and someone else is taking it from us, and someone else is coming in and, and moving what we have enjoyed. How dare they? Do you see, this, this problem occurs in these complaints and in these attacks and in this, these conversations as we begin to, to despise the people who have moved into that space. And we may even be tempted to try and cut them out in some way. And you see, when we do this, when we attack our neighbors, when we try to move and cut corners around the property lines, when we complain over who's moving in and who's taking up what's the space that we used to belong to us. You see, it becomes not just a land dispute, it becomes a life dispute. Because in our hearts, we begin looking at these people who are coming into our lives and we begin thinking to ourselves and even maybe saying out loud, I wish you didn't live here. I wish that you lived somewhere else. And in that sentiment, in that heart moment, there is a, a very real attack on someone's life. Because we begin minimizing, dehumanizing, and removing the very image of God that he has given to these people. Turn, turn with me, grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Kings. Just a, a few books over into the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 21. Now, I, I want to show you a, a very real life example of this law being broken and, and the results of it. In 1 Kings 21, uh, just to set some context, again, context matters. Here in, in Israel's time, we have uh, a king who, and his wife, the queen, who were uh, famous or maybe rather infamous. King Ahab and his wife, the lovely and fair Jezebel. Uh, and, and in 1 Kings 21, what is happening is you have King Ahab who's sitting in his palace and he's looking out of all of his land, and as the king, he, he could have and, and does have just about anything that he would want. And look with me in, in 1 Kings 21, 
beginning of verse one says this. Now, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father. So, so stop here for a moment. Let, here's a simple business uh, arrangement. The king sees a, a piece of land right next to his and says, look, I want to buy it for you. I'll give you a better vineyard or I'll, I'll give you enough money to ac- account for it. Whatever you prefer, Naboth, I just want to buy your vineyard so that I can have a bigger garden. I like my veggies. And Naboth's response is very key, and I think it ties into Deuteronomy 19, because he says, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Because you see, to Naboth, this is not just a vineyard. This is something that the Lord had given Naboth's ancestors. It has belonged to his family for generations, much like probably many of the land that you live on. It has belonged to your family for generations. It is special to you. And Naboth said, look, this, this vineyard was given as an inheritance to me by the Lord. I can't just part with it. In any other day, in any other situation, that should be the end of it. Guy tries to buy it. Owner says, no, okay, moving on. Not so with Ahab. What a lovely king he was that he decides to bring out his inner toddler and pitch a fit. Look with me, continuing in verse 4, he says, And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. How dare he? And Ahab lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Ahab threw a pity party because somebody took his toy away. A toy that he didn't even have. And so in this moment of, of a pity party, Ahab is pouting and he's not eating any food and he's, he's throwing this fit. And enter his lovely wife, Jezebel. You may not know much about Jezebel, but I'm willing to bet that her very name you have heard is associated with not a very good person. Verse 5, Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and he said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So, husband, the king, is throwing a pity party. His wife, the queen, says, look, you're the king. I'll go get it for you. Don't worry about it. And so Jezebel begins her scheming. She says, so she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king and then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel sent word to them. 
as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. And then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. This is a horrible, tragic story. The king pitches a fit. So the queen has Naboth killed. Falsely accusing him of something he'd never done. But having killed him, the very immediate response. I would imagine this takes place even before the funeral of Naboth could be completed. Ahab and Jezebel go down and take the vineyard. I mean, here we have a crystal clear picture of how property can be intrinsically tied to someone's very life. And we may not kill our neighbor for their vineyard. But every complaint that we utter against our neighbors. Every abuse we give to their property, every time we covet their property, every time we gripe in any way. It is an assault on the image of God in them. You see, it is not long before where we move from this idea that my neighbors are in my way to my neighbors are now my enemies. And then my neighbors are now beneath me. They are unworthy of me. They are scum beneath my feet. You see, we become like Ahab, complaining like a toddler who doesn't get the land that he wanted. Or because someone else is standing in his way. Then we become Jezebel, attacking and belittling and dehumanizing them because they're in our way. And you know, Ahab and Jezebel had a long list Terrible things they had done. This was by by far not the worst thing in my mind that they did. I mean, this was a king and a queen who hunted down and slaughtered each and every one of God's prophets except Elijah. Hunted them down and killed them. After doing this, they then intentionally commanded and decreed the installment of idols and altars so that Israel could come and worship Baal in public. The king of Israel made it a law. Build altars for Baal. And all of this, all of the things, all the terrible things that they did, God was silent after each and every one of them. He didn't come down and curse Ahab. He didn't punish Jezebel for, for slaughtering the prophets. None of it. And yet, immediately following Ahab's receival, uh, receiving of, of Naboth's vineyard, God finally speaks. 
And of all the things, all the terrible crimes and sins that Ahab and Jezebel both committed, it was this crime against Naboth that God comes in and says, that's it. You're done. And God speaks a word to Ahab and he says, I'm not only going to end your life, but I'm going to end the lives of your children and your grandchildren. Your line will end because of what you've done to Naboth. And then he speaks concerning Jezebel and he says, Naboth was a Jezreelite. He's from the city of Jezreel and it will be in that city, Jezebel, the dogs will feast on your blood in the streets of Jezreel. You see, if we believe that God is the one who has given us our stuff, if he is the one who's given us our land, our property, the things that we own, that he has intentionally and sovereignly placed us here in this place, then whenever we grumble and complain over people moving into our area, when we whine over new houses being built, when we fight over property lines, we are attacking the very lives of our neighbors. We are guilty then of a great sin. You see, property is, is more than just property. It's more than just stuff. Understand and, and believe that God has given you these things. And he's also given these things to others. As he has sovereignly decreed and decided to do so. And to whine and complain about what he's given other people and not you. Is to turn to God and say, God, you're, you're wrong here. What you've done is not good. And it's not fair. And I don't like it. And this comes so easily, almost naturally to us, doesn't it? Complaining and grumbling about what other people have that we don't have. This is, it's almost a second language to us. Why does this come so easily? Why is this second nature to us so many times? I think it's because we've forgotten the last truth of this passage. You see, property is important. And our lives are are connected and tied up with our property and where we live. And attacking someone else's property, truth number two, is equated with an attack on their life. Yes, both of these things are true. But the third and final truth this morning that we must remember is that your property is not your life. Property is given as a means of life. Attacking property is an attack on life. But property is not life. I don't don't think I'll ever stop being amazed at how quickly our sinful hearts can turn a, a gift into a God. I mean, think about it for a moment. Let's, let's imagine a scenario where you get a, a new car. You saved up money. You've gone to the dealership. You've gotten a great deal. You've bought a new car. It's perfect. And you bought this car to fill needs for your family, to carry your children, to carry your stuff. It's, it's exactly what you need, and you're proud of it. You're thankful for it. And let's say you, you bought the car to carry your kids to and from school, to load your family and to move easily around. But one of the first things that comes out of your mouth as your kids climb into the back seats with their food-crusted shirts and their muddy boots and all of the germs and gunk that just seems to follow them everywhere they go, 
the first thing you say is don't touch anything. Don't get your stuff on any of this. And we take this good gift and we, this gift that was given and bought and purchased so that we could provide and carry our family. Now our family is in the way and in danger of hurting our gift. The same car that was given to bless your family is now being used to show your kids how unworthy of it they are. And we do it with our property, too. We we take a gift that God has given, a, a gift that was meant to be used to serve our families, to serve our neighbors through hospitality, a, a gift that was meant to be welcoming and inviting to everyone to come and enjoy the goodness that God has shown me and my family. Come and enjoy it with me. We take that gift And we build walls and we build fences and we turn a house into a castle. And we put up big signs that say, keep out, this is mine, don't touch it. Can't let anything happen to it. We must must protect it at all costs and keep everyone else out no matter what. This is mine, not yours. We sit there and we take the gifts that God has given us and we wrap our fingers around it until it is a fist. And we say, you will never pry this out of my fingers. It is mine. Church, let me tell you very clearly, as as clearly as I can, you and I both need to loosen our grip on our stuff. We need to loosen our grip on the gifts that God has given us. Because it is this tight-fisted nature of our hearts that shapes these gifts that God has given and turns them into God's. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we loosen that grip on our stuff, on our property? As in everything else, I think that the answer is in Christ. We, we look to Christ, who is both our example and our strength. See, he's our example. Philippians 2, speaking of Christ, gives us this this beautiful hymn, this beautiful poem about Christ. And it says this, that though Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself Becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, this is what Christ has done. This is what Philippians 2 is praising Jesus for, is that he in heaven, before he was born to Mary and Joseph, had everything. Had all the heavenly glory, heavenly riches, heavenly property, all was in his grasp. And though it was in his grasp, He said, this is not worth something to close my fist over. And he took the things that he had as God and he laid them aside. And became human. And in that human form, he had nothing. He was the son of a carpenter. He was as broke as broke can be. When people would come and follow him and say, Jesus, let me be your disciple. He would turn to them and say, look, foxes have holes in the ground and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. He had nothing. 
the God of the universe, the creator, the son of the king, the king had everything in heaven and he put it all away and he said, no, I'm going to become human. And I'm going to die. And I'm going to die on a cross. And if Christ can set aside his heavenly glory and the riches of heaven so that he could die in your place, then who are you to be so tight-fisted with your property? Who are you to be so tight-fisted with the very things that he himself has given you? But I believe that it has to be more than just a do-it-because-God-said-so command. Because that creates in us legalistic hearts that run us down a whole different rabbit hole to hell. No, Christ not only did this as the example, he is also the strength behind our doing it. And he gives us this strength to to accomplish this, to loosen our grip on our stuff, because in his death, he has set us free from the false gods that have a grip on us. You see, it's not just that you and I are are tight-fisted with our stuff. It's that our stuff gets tight-fisted with us. See, when we turn gifts into gods, these gods enslave us. They trap us. And property is no different. Your stuff is no different. We can be in chains to our land and to our stuff without ever realizing it. But you see, as Christ died for your sins, he died for your idol worship. He died to free you from this, from being gripped tightly by your things. And as he died, he began prying loose the grip that these gods had on your heart to set you free from it. To purchase your freedom. And in his resurrection, when he walked out of the grave, he proclaimed your freedom to every corner of the universe. Christ set aside his heavenly glory. He set aside what was rightly, rightfully his. And this he set aside so that he could live in the dirt and free us who are in the dirt from the chains that wrap us around us so tightly. See, following Jesus means that you hold a very loose grip on everything else and a very tight grip on him. Because he has a tight grip on you. Which is better to cling to? Your land or your king? Which, is, which, which one of these will save you? Your stuff or your savior? Which one of these has bled for you? See, your property, your stuff, while, while it is a very important gift and a means of life to you, it is not your life. Christ is. Don't treat your stuff like it's more than it is. As we land the plane here, I'm was reminded studying this this week of, of how the, the persecution of the early church. 
And, you know, before before the Roman Empire became the Holy Roman Empire, before they made Christianity the state religion, Christians were the bullseye of every aim of the Roman government. They attacked them at all costs. And the very first and primary way that they attacked the church was by taking away their property. And it became so prevalent, especially early on, that a lot of the letters of the early church, when they speak of persecution, when they speak of trials, they're speaking to a church that has lost land. They've lost jobs. They've lost everything. And when you lose everything that your life has been built around, the, the, the early churches, especially the church that the, the book of Hebrews is written to, the constant question running through that church's mind was, are we doing something wrong? We're following Jesus, we're pursuing Christ, we're evangelizing, we're spreading the gospel, we're making disciples. Jesus has bled and died for us and we've been freed, but yet we're losing. We're losing everything. Are we doing something wrong? And so many letters of the New Testament speak to this to encourage the church through this persecution, through this loss of stuff. Romans, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Peter speak to it. Thessalonians speak to it. Corinthians speak to it. Hebrews speaks to it. All of it pointing the church's eyes not to their stuff here, but forward to where their true treasure lies. In the book of Hebrews, at the very end of the book, one of the, the last chapter, it says this. It says, for here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you do have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Church, God has given you your land and your property and your things and your stuff. As a good gift from a heavenly father who loves you. And he has done the same for everyone around you. All good gifts are from above. Knowing this, then let us rejoice and share these blessings with everyone that we can. To invite them to celebrate with us the goodness of our God. But if the day should come that we lose these gifts. That your property is taken from you, that your business fails, that however it may come, if you lose these things, then let it be okay with us. Remember that these things are not your life. And that the loss of these things does not mean that God is any less good or sovereign or gracious than he ever was. Even in loss, God is still God, and God is still good. Use your property as a gift from a good father, and see it as such. Praise him for it this afternoon. I encourage you, praise God this afternoon as you go home and eat lunch with your family and and look out over your front porch and, and see all the things that God has given you. Praise him for it. And then look across the street and down the road And the things that he's given your neighbors. And praise him for those things that he's given them too. But hold them all very loosely.
because they are not your light. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the things you've given us. And thank you for all the the wonderful ways that you have revealed yourself to us and provided for us. God, help us to appreciate the things you've given us and not to be negligent with them or to be abusive with them or to be forgetful of where they truly come from. God, help us to protect what you've given both us and protect what you've given to others. God, help us to hold these things loosely. We may think that we have a grip on them, but in reality, they have a grip on us. So Christ, we pray that your freedom that was purchased by your blood and by your resurrection would be spoken once again to us. That we would be set free from the prison and from the chains and from the grip of our things. Help us to hold these things loosely. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we we turn now to the table. We take the Lord's Supper here every week at Bear Creek. It, is a, it, it provides really an opportunity for us to respond to God's Word. And, and we, don't, we don't preach God's Word just because it gives us something to do. Uh, we preach God's Word because it is good, because it is true, because we need it. And because we need it so, in hearing God's Word and studying God's Word, it demands a response. Let me, let me give you just a few ways that you can respond to God's word this morning. First, it can mean repentance. Maybe you're realizing this morning that your stuff has held a, a pretty tight grip on your heart. And you need to repent of it. And do it. Repent and ask Christ to help free you once again from these, from these chains. Maybe you need to repent of attacking and complaining and grumbling against neighbors who get in your way. And do it. Maybe, maybe you have been the victim of property lines being moved. Maybe you've been the victim of, of grumbling neighbors. And in your mind, you feel justified to want to lash out and, and attack back. But let me, let me encourage you. Two ways. One, God sees your suffering. God sees the attacks that have been done against you. And he knows them. He himself suffered false attacks as well. But two, let me remind you that vengeance is not justice. Be okay to be abused. Be okay to be attacked. Be okay to be assaulted in this life. Christ pretty much promised we would be. And the self-justification and that anger that riles up in us could possibly be God's way of showing us that we are holding too tightly a grip on our things. Last way that I'll encourage you to respond is, is maybe you're here and you're not a believer this morning. You haven't placed faith, saving faith in Christ. You don't know what, what it really means to do that. If that's you, then I would encourage you not to take this this morning, not to take the table. Even if you've taken it in weeks past, just put it down this morning. And pray and take Christ instead. As we come to the table, we are reminded of of the death of Christ. 
Because you see, as we come to the table and we see the bread, we, we see the body of Christ that was broken. We are reminded that he who was rich became poor so that we who are poor may become rich. The body of Christ broken for you. And as we turn to the, to the cup, the bread always points us back. The cup always points us forward. For here we do not have a city. We seek the city that is to come. And in this new city, Christ has promised, he's guaranteed with his blood as a seal of the agreement that everything that belongs to Christ will one day be ours. That we will be co-heirs to the throne of grace. That in that moment, everything and more that we could ever dream of in God will be ours. Because he provides for our life. Because he is our life. And so we look forward, we anticipate, we pray that God would come quickly and restore these things. And until that day comes, we remember to the king. We're going to, to sing one final song this morning. Next week, we will be, if you like to read ahead and prepare for, for worship next Sunday, we will be finishing chapter 19 of Deuteronomy. And so I encourage you to, to read and come, come prepared to hear God's word. Uh, but this morning, we'll close our worship by singing hymn 470. Dear Lord and Father of mankind, please stand and sing.
Our benediction this morning, as it is every week, is the Great Commission, which you will find printed in the bulletin. We are called here to go forth to make disciples, and in doing this, we are called to teach, to teach these disciples everything that the Lord has commanded. And surely Deuteronomy 19.14 is one such command. So I encourage you to go forth and live in obedience and live and teach this. Say the Great Commission aloud with me this morning. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in grace.